The other part of conscious collecting is how are we looking through various lenses of technology, of capital markets, of collection theory, about understanding the dynamics of what you may be collecting, because you're also living in a marketplace. But when you trade in art, that is a very sacred space in which to operate. So all of those parts are things that we have to address in understanding from soup to nuts. What does it mean for us to be conscious as a collector, but also conscious as a collective? This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Rafilu Mpakanyane. Powered by I2Art Insurum, Season 1 of the Latitudes Podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2Art Insurum. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. This episode's guest is the erudite San Francisco-based Charles M. Collins, better known as Chuck to friends and colleagues. Charles's career spans real estate development as well as law. His years of civic-orientated work have garnered him such titles as President Emeritus of the YMCA of San Francisco. He serves on the San Francisco Arts Commission and is also a board member of the revered San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Our conversation begins with how Charles's interest in the visual arts began. We then spend some time looking into why visual literacy is central to our lived experiences, and then we zoom into how intentionality and strategic planning can elevate African art and art in the diaspora. And as a self-declared humanist, Charles is adamant that there's no better time to take advantage of the technology and the resources around us in order to advance this cause. Let's get into it. You have held titles over the years which are seemingly unrelated to the art world. So from 1983 to 2002, you were the president and chairman of WDG Ventures. Uh, You also practiced law and you were the deputy secretary of the Business Transportation and Housing Agency for the state of California. But... You did, of course, double major in history and art history for your Bachelor of Arts. Could you give us a sense of how and when your love for art was sown? First, I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to have this conversation with you. I so respect the work that you're doing. I appreciate that you are bringing to life stories so that we may foster more dialogue and it's, it's wonderful to be in San Francisco while you're in Johannesburg and to understand that we're spanning huge distances in real time. So you asked how and when was my love for art 
sown. I'm a strong believer in epigenetics. I'm a strong believer that that we inherit the stories of our ancestors, that we don't start with a blank slate when we enter life on earth, but we're given an endowment that is from the stars or from our histories or from what our families and the people that surround us have brought forth. I'm a product of that. I was born into a family in which art mattered and art has mattered for some time. When you grow up and you realize that your great-grandmother was collecting things that were of interest to her, it, it didn't, and it doesn't matter that they were things that we would call at the time art, but it was what their eyes were drawn towards, what stories inhabited their homes and how those homes were domestic places for people to grow and to become. Yeah. And so growing up, I learned the stories of certain things that are in our family that really date back some more than a century ago or maybe a century and a half ago. And those things carry their own stories. What is art will always be something that is debated. But I think that the idea of creativity and what people pay attention to me is at the foundation of this. I also, in terms of having two wonderful biological parents, they were always drawn to, I would say, design art. I have told people that my mother, though she was trained as a dental hygienist, that she had four Mm -hmm. rambunctious boys, my mother found time for modern dance in the 1940s. And she used that as a way of, I think, probably psychotherapy, but also of creative personal expression. And what was it like for a Black woman to be able to express herself? That's in the history of many great dancers. Look at Catherine Dunham. Look at Josephine Baker. Mm -hmm. And we could go on and on. Or also look to our ancestral histories and past. So my mother had that always as a part of her own kind of practice. I think it was her own private space and private way of expressing herself. My father was a scientist. He was a professor at the University of California at San Francisco. Uh, But he had an immense curiosity uh, about a, a larger world. And he was a son of the South. But he came West, I think, because of where the world brought him at that point in time, but he took full advantage of the, the domains of, of California, It's it, the way it expressed itself. And my father took up two things in addition to raising four sons and being a professor and practicing his dental surgery, is my father picked up three things. He picked up the piano and began to get deeply into what we would then call classical piano, European work. He picked up the guitar and learned and was Mm. taught how to play classical guitar. So the sound of the mornings in our household were of my father playing his scales and and practicing and and keeping his agility. The other is my father painted. That's beautiful. And he Mm. liked to use the outdoors to paint landscape. And this was just natural. There was nothing that was attention called to these, but this was the domestic circumstance in which I was raised. 
And so visual culture yeah. also began to take on a deeper uh, path for me. And I, I was lucky enough uh, to have a, an early teacher that was made possible by my parents who taught me essentially how to look out and see. His practice was not starting with how you craft it, but how do you form a reference to what in where you are and to really begin to create your own your own stories with what is out there and then what you bring that those stories inside. The early part of my journey was much about exploration as a child. Now that goes into some things that became formal. In school, we had a practice yeah. called recognition, identification, and appreciation, which meant that we were looking at visual culture and we looked at it. We had to then learn who is the author uh, of that artistic work. And then how is it that you appreciate this? Largely, that was Western art. Largely, that was looking mm -hmm. at the European canon. But I think from a fundamental perspective, because I think of the richness of the rest of my family, that was just learning a vocabulary, learning a practice, and developing a yeah. way of deciphering, decoding, and in a sense, appreciating and classifying the world that you see. That then yeah. led to an interest in more formal studies, right? Now we're going we're gonna to go off to college, and now we're going to begin to study what art history was in the 1960s as basically canonized in, in what you were taught. Now, you know where that's, that conversation is going to take us, right? Western <laughs> civilization, I, European hegemony, all of that stuff was, was what you were taught, but that's not what I was willing to be limited by. Charles, I'm really struck by, first of all, how you've synthesized all these experiences. And my first and biggest thought is spoken like a true teacher. And you've drawn forth all these experiences and really just laid bare the everyday innate appreciation for beauty, that sort of natural intelligence that we should be mindful to nurture as we grow up, as we chase our careers, as we have our own children, as something not to forget. And you talk about your mother and her modern dance, perhaps as a form of, amongst many other things, psychotherapy. But just the idea that both your parents really made it their business to carry on nurturing and finding that the creative personal expression which fed them and stimulated your own interests as well and those of your siblings. And I think it's such an incredible thing to carry with you throughout your life, which is not often what people do as they grow into adulthood. Yes, the path to adulthood certainly starts in childhood. But one of the things that I believe is inherent is that we're always getting visual messages. We're always getting, mm -hmm. we're, we're always hearing, we're feeling. Our senses are a part of what we are and how we navigate the world. And how your own literacy, your own stack of who you become is built, it, it's very important for us in particular to drive a type of cultural literacy, 
to understand the stories of our ancestors and to understand the stories upon which we have been built. Now, we can frame those in literature, in drama, in, in visual culture, in music, but we have these mechanisms as humans to be able to express. And so we see this creative expression as being an African-American. It's inherent in our understanding, say, of our own sense of music. Jazz is an American creation. It is an African-American creation. It occurs here on this continent, but its derivation is from the deep histories and the deep ways in which we came across this middle passage and began to hear things in, in different ways, how our languages were formed, how we used a, a type of creative interpretation in real time to foster intersections in music that had never been heard before. And so this idea that we are only living in one dimension of this visual culture, if we think about poetry, if we think that it's been looking at the poets of America and who are they? Who is Phyllis Wheatley? Who are these people that are bringing literature forward? And so the story of America and the story of our African relationship are intimately tied together. They cannot be separated. And in fact, creates a struggle in America because of the unresolved issues with the origin story of how Africans yes. became African Americans. But all of this also yes. leads to a creative foment, a way of expressing and, and really letting out through creativity what is our story? What are our stories? And how do we import them into a framework that really lifts us all and really brings us to the next level of our progress on this planet and in the worlds in which we occupy? Yeah. Charles, I feel as though a, a different and rather vital conversation that we could quite easily have is the idea of some kind of historical or societal resolution around how nations are born, right? As you say, the history of how Africans become African-Americans, and we sit here in South Africa 30 years into our own democracy, and this open question and unresolved matter of what a new dispensation means and what a lack of closure around our own crime against humanity, which is about to date. What does that mean? And the sort of open wounds that people live with daily, but also the kind of agency needed or required to move forward despite of or because of. But like I said, <laughs> definitely a conversation for another day, but one that's always in the back of our minds. That brings me to the question of why you decided to study art history when you went to university, because as you've just acknowledged, of course, you're studying in the sort of form and the history of Eurocentric and Westernized canons and appreciation and understanding of art. What did you want to do with art history? First, I wanted just to enjoy the journey that I could take. So imagine that I'm balancing both my studies in history, which again, were largely European and North American frameworks, together with art history, which is the same thing, right? This is the Western canon being taught. That is the way that people were taught to think. 
and therefore that's what you thought was right. Side by side with that was for me, my own, as I was saying, my own background. Understanding the stories of Blacks on this continent was nothing new to me. And in a sense, I was shocked and appalled that our formal institutions were not carrying these frameworks. Neither did we have stories of our indigenous histories. Neither did we have stories of our of the other histories. It was a very hard Western American canon, right? But that wasn't all. And I knew that wasn't all. So I, it didn't come to some big shock to me that we had to redirect this. And a lot of the work that I did as an undergraduate was to break through, to punch through that and to, and to cause, you know, mm-hmm. the changes that have evolved so that we can look at things through a much more dynamic and inclusive. I don't, the term diverse, I'm not going to use that. I'm going to say a more integrative sure. notion of what we are and how we should learn, the fundamentals of how we should learn. And I looked at these two big subject areas, history and art history, simply as learning a practice. How do you develop your voice? How do you write? How do you critically think? How do you analyze? How do you take things that are observable and put them in ways in which you can understand them? And so on both sides of me, of Chuck Collins, the idea of art, appreciation, creativity, looking at that, understanding, at least through some form formalities, how to approach that. And the other is history. Sure. You know, and and one of them led me to being able to frame things in ways to look at all these different parts and to integrate them. And so if you're integrating history and art history, then you get to look at the world through these eyes. And so when I go to a city, I'm as curious about the architecture as I am about the food stalls. I'm as curious about what people are doing in terms of social organization as I am in going into yeah. what they would call their museums. And so for me, mm-hmm. one of them is sitting within walls. The other is sitting in the broad world in which we operate. But the way, and, and my wife reminds me of this, I go into places and there's a structure in my brain. I'm interested in the deep histories that reside in these places, but also what is the what are mm-hmm. the visual cues? What are the cultural cues? What happened here and how those stories are told? And so that's a practice that I have. Another part that's important in this is that when I finished college, I was given an amazing opportunity to go anywhere in the world and to do anything that I wanted to for two years. It was a carte blanche mm. to explore the world at 21 And while I could have and probably should have taken a more relaxed and informal way of spending these years, my mind just wouldn't let me do that. And so I landed in Athens, in Greece, for the next two years, where I was Mm -hmm. working in a research institute that fed into both my history, my art history, and my deep love and interest in cities. And so I sat for two years at the knee of Konstantinos Doxiadis, at the Athens Center of Echistics in in that part of the world. And there we were studying the history of cities, how cities grow and evolve, what is happening in terms of the global connection that we now call ecumenopolis. We're seeing this phenomenon 
and climate right now where we're living in one system, but we have thought for many eons that we're living just in different and separate worlds. And so I was in, in Greece and it allowed me to study out of there into London, into Brazil, but also keeping a framework of the research that I was doing, which was on transcontinental mm -hmm. migration. But that time, the mm -hmm. British Empire uh, was breaking up and the Commonwealth was moving in different ways. And so we were seeing the rapid migration of huge populations from Pakistan, India, the Caribbean, from East Africa, from West Africa, from uh, Hong Kong, from all of these parts of the Commonwealth. And they were moving dynamically, but also they were moving dynamically into England, into London. And yes. that caused it a very interesting set of dynamics that, were, that are changing in real time. I also did a study on the flow of people coming out of the Amazon because of the building of the Trans-Amazon Highway. We call those favelados, the people coming out and living in what we call um, informal communities scattered throughout Brazil. But these were huge sure. populations that were really changing what our cities looked like. And in both cases, in this real time, you're looking at huge migration flows and the changes in culture that happen when these populations now begin to integrate into other frameworks and redefine what life in those places is all about. And my formal studies in art history, my interest in history, my interest in cities, then lands me in this triangular a relationship between Rio, London, and Athens, where I then crash my brain against my own limitations and begin to think about how cultures are migrating in this really dynamic way and what the implications will be as these cultures come first into collision, but then into something that is integrative and changing. Yeah. Sounds, it just sounds absolutely fascinating. Sure. Yeah. It sounds really incredible. And speaking of uh, the United Kingdom, Charles, you were recently in London, which is how this conversation comes about. And you linked up with the Latitudes team, that's Roberta and Lucy, of course, uh, around the Kisa Art Collectors Program in London. And of course, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, Kisa is an art investment and advisory company. And it's a fantastic initiative, but essentially focused on developing um, transformative solutions for the modern and contemporary Africa and diaspora art market. Why did you want to be or agree to be part of this program, the Kisa Art Collectors Program? The con very conversation that you and I are in right now is an example of why this is important, right? Sure. The, the question that we have to ask ourselves is we're looking at this remarkable, long-blooming, long-taking long time to really bring forth the current wave of African and diasporic artistic expression, at the same time, it's always been there. When, when we look at what we call art, that is something that depends on who the viewer is and what the conversation is all about. But one of the things that, yeah, that we're really looking at is what is culture? And what are cultural dynamics that are really important for grounding people in their souls, in their work, in their identity, in their safety, and all of that. 
And we have typically looked, you know, over time in history at certain things that give us clues to what we think we are. And so, you know, in this moment of a lot of focus and light on African and diaspora work, is this just a fashion? Is this just a flash in the pan? Or is this something that really is extraordinarily concrete? And does this have the ability to begin to reshape the canon that we talked about earlier in the conversation? I think that that's what's at stake here, that in this incredible moment in which there is broad and dynamic interest, how do we sustain this work in many dimensions? And how do we create a, a, the infrastructure around this that allows our artists and our creatives to be able to have sustained expression and economic safety and recognition and, and cultural identity so that this is not something that is like a fashion show in Paris or Milan and it goes away and it changes in the next season. We have to build the type of resilience, the durability, the interconnection. We have to really, in a sense, this term of taking charge of the narrative. And, And that's not going to happen without us understanding who we are, where we want to go, how do we sustain this? And what are the elements towards sustainability that really bring forth generation after generation so that this moment is catalytic? that it is a spark and it has ignited yeah. something. And for us, we have to keep the flame going because again, at the earlier part of the conversation, you were talking about how our, our expressions of culture can be ways in which we, we resolve a lot of these seemingly insolvable, insoluble problems that we have. But can we use you know, mm-hmm. the creative dialogue of art and expression to keep those conversations alive. So the Kisa Collective is a growing idea. And I think that Frida and Lucille are keeping this conversation alive so that we can then begin to discover each other. And the way that this is happening is by Kisa bringing people together around certain themes, and then deepening the dialogue, making sure that we are connecting among each other and between each other, and that we are continuing to have these conversations that lead to tangible results. So conversations are interesting. You can have them over a cocktail. You can be a party, and then that goes. No, what Lucille and Frida are talking about is developing something that has much deeper infrastructure, that it has a type of sustainability behind it. It is connected, it is persistent, and it is in dialogue. And I think that is where we're going with this. And it's going to be up to us all to figure out how we connect and and take it forward. Yeah. Let's look at exactly that, Charles, which is that very important element around the Kisa Art Collectors program that you've essentially touched on, the idea of conscious or intentional collecting with the aim of elevating African art. First of all, when you talk about or think about 
conscious collecting, what does that actually fundamentally mean? And what are the systemic issues that you hope or know that this movement done well or executed successfully will actually address? Conscious collecting is something that I I think should probably be an entire theme. But what is consciousness in this in this case? I think that in this context, conscious collecting is bringing intention into the choices that are made. What what are those intentions? How are they informed? In dialogue with whom? Do you have an understanding of the artist or of what you're looking at? There, there can be, and I, I've used this kind of metaphor, the notion of a fashion show. I'm going to pull down yeah. the fashion of the moment. It looks good. A lot of people are buying it. It's got good hanger appeal. and wears looks good when you walk <laughs> out in it. That's fashion. I think that what we're talking about is something that is really not about fashion. I think we're talking about something that is is much more deeply at work. And what is deeply at work, again, is that how do we foster a culture of creativity that has sustainability and has the ability to change how everyone thinks in a much more broad way? an intentional way. So the consciousness around Mm it is looking both inside of yourself and then also looking at the context in which these artists or other creatives are bringing forth work. And so consciousness implies a focus on being awake, about being aware, about being alert about being open to what a 360-degree view of what you're doing and how you as an individual may influence other choices that are being made. The other part of conscious collecting that the Kisa Collective is working towards is how are we looking through various lenses of technology of capital markets, of collection theory, about understanding the dynamics of what you may be collecting, because you're also living in a marketplace. You're living in a place in which there are goods that are being traded. But when you trade in art, that is a very sacred space in which to operate. And so if we're looking at just churning art, and we're just creating higher, quote, market values, what does that do? And how does that work? Because your collectors can also create art markets that then become valued and wealth or things like that. So all of those parts are things that we have to address in understanding from soup to nuts. What does it mean for us to be conscious as a collector, but also conscious as a collective. We continue our conversation after the short break.
Latitudes Online is the world's leading online marketplace for art from Africa. Discover and buy artworks from over 1,700 artists and enjoy editorial from leading voices on the continent. When you buy from Latitudes Online, you have peace of mind that your artwork will be safely delivered to you in perfect condition. Visit latitudes.online to discover and buy art from Africa and sign up for our weekly newsletter. When you talk about that churn and the the power of the collector to influence and essentially put their thumb on the scale when it comes to art markets just puts me in mind of various themes or conversations post the London trip. But one of those was essentially that call for artists to slow down, be conscious and intentional in their work there is that push or pull to want to churn out work at this fast rate because the attention is on you right now and you want to capitalize on that excitement and that interest and essentially get it whilst the getting is good. And yet the conversation that you seem to be having um, in London was that to do that is to do yourself a disservice and do yourself an injury in the long run. Talk to me about that push against, first of all, grind culture, but essentially that push against fast art. So when we were in London, we brought up athletes. And so if we just switched and thought about this through the lens of athletics, then let's look at professional athletics, right? Because that's where the money is made. But if a young athlete gets out into the field of global competition without the proper background, they won't last. And the background is not just in your agility as the athlete, but also your maturity as a person. So imagine an 18 or 17-year-old young person being recruited to professional athletes with money like they had never had before and with no particular guidance and being driven to score, to compete, to win, right? That's the goal here. But Mm -hmm. inside of that is the individual who needs to mature. Now let's switch this over to artists. Uh, the, The broader question is the grind culture, not just among, say, the creative artist, her or himself or themselves, but how all of these different parts are working together. There is a particular and I think growing conversation around the responsibility of the gallerist, the person who may have Mm -hmm. the hot ticket and is going to make the commission off of a lot of sales. But what is that relationship between the gallerist and the artist? What is the relationship to the curators? How is it that curators have a duty to help the artists to develop and to find their own voice and to make sure that that they have the runway and the latitude to develop? What is the responsibility of museums? You look at this young, hot artist that gets that museum show, and that can be extremely important. We certainly know that that Frank Bowling had an early museum show 
when he was fresh out of art school. But for a set of reasons, it did not stop him from continuing to develop into his 90s now as an artist. And you want to look at accelerators. You want to look at acknowledgement. Recognition is certainly important. How is it that we allow the system to work so that our artists are not starving artists? And I think that is the beauty of what we're talking about here with Kisa, is that artists should not be standing alone. They should not be that young athlete out there just getting recruited to play professional without having a coach, a mentor, a person to walk that path with them. And that that requires relationships and trust building and safety in those relationships. And I think that the the Nabuki Foundation in Ghana is a great example of this. So that when we're looking Mm -hmm. at what Opil is doing at the Nabuki, she is helping to curate curators so that they're on a path of understanding their opportunity, role, and responsibility. Having the physical space of the foundation in Accra allows then artists to be able to come in in the context of curators, in the context of the foundation, so that they can maybe be fast off the block. And it's good to have a a first show, but how are you going to return back to that, having developed your soul and your practice and such and and going on? And so uh, part of what uh, the Kisa series is doing is bringing people together. I think Roberta and Lucy talking about some of the challenges in South Africa. You're looking at artists who may be under-resourced. They're out there, let's say, but providing a framework where there can Mm -hmm. be a marketplace that they can, in a sense, earn some living around it. But also, are there other things that are going to be brought by virtue of the work that they're doing together? so that you're fostering a climate mm. and a context and resources so that the artists are able then to mature, to be in dialogue, to have other people working with yeah. them so that they're not just fast and furious, but they may be fast and furious, but are they sustainable? It was also interesting in the course of this to look at these under-resourced environments where creativity mm. is always in the human spirit. In every community, there are going to be creatives. But what happens when you are in a place where it's highly under-resourced? And how do we help to build those resources? And I think that this is, again, the type of work that Latitudes is talking about, is providing on-ramps for artists to be able to come together, but also, again, to be in dialogue and communication among each other, that they have community. So community is a very important part, I think, of the new paradigm so that the gallerists understand and that the market is going to hold the gallerists accountable to the development of the artist so that they're not a throwaway piece of fashion that they don't really take into the next and following seasons. That's the danger of this, is that you have the exploitation that always happens in markets. Yeah, and and inevitably, it's unfortunate to say that does happen. We're going to talk about. We're gonna. I want to build more on the 
community building and the importance of community very shortly. But that idea of holding institutions accountable or effecting change where it's needed. Of course, you've occupied various influential positions within the arts and that's serving on the South, sorry, serving on the San Francisco Arts Commission, as well as being a board member of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. How have you utilized those positions to create this kind of change that you've just unpacked in terms of what gallerists then need to be or what standards a gallerist needs to be held to? And of course, in elevating and celebrating well, African art. Yeah. And in this part of the conversation, I get to hold two kind of institutional frameworks constant. And each one of those frameworks have their own antecedents, right? But they land with the presidency of the San Francisco Arts Commission and then being an officer of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. One, mm -hmm. the Arts Commission is unabashedly a public institution. It mm -hmm. is the holder of the cultural work of the city and county of San Francisco. I'm appointed by our brilliant mayor, London Breed, who herself was a person who developed her own early career in the arts and in community-based arts too. And so she, we call her our art mayor. Art matters in San Francisco. And art is 11% of our gross city product is associated with the arts. That is a significant amount of money that is generated mm -hmm. in our city because of the cultural institutions that we have. And so in the Arts Commission, we have the responsibility for about four different areas. One of them has to do with our public collection. And what is the responsibility mm -hmm. when you have a public collection? What is in that collection? How is that collection created? What monuments and memorials are there? And what do they make important by virtue of their position and their power and their strength. We have really looked exactly. at the civic art collection very critically through the lens of, our, of where we are today with the type of monumental reckoning that we have to look at, that monuments are usually erected because of the victors. Who are the victors and what are the stories? Memorials lament something that happened Memorials tell us about loss, about tragedy, about sorrow, about the things that we need to confront that are often very uncomfortable. And so when you're looking at monuments and you're looking at memorials, our civic art collection really is a part of that. We also get to help all of the departments of the city in bringing art into their buildings, in their projects. So a great example of that is our San Francisco International Airport, which is a treasure trove yeah. of art that really expresses the values of our city. And, and so we have the responsibility of choosing that art and making sure that it is reflective of all of the different stories that we want to tell. It's brilliant that we have an entire terminal at the San Francisco mm -hmm. Airport mm -hmm. that is named after Harvey Milk the supervisor yeah. that was shot yeah. dead at city hall and because of his because he was gay but we have a yeah. terminal at san francisco airport that celebrates him that celebrates the art 
of, of that community. And we bring it as a part of our whole community. I could go on, but that is the type of work that we have for our, our general hospital, our biggest hospital. We choose the art from a healing perspective, from a trauma-informed mm -hmm. perspective. How is it that we use art in a hospital to tell people that, that they're on a path, they're on a journey, and we're with you on that journey? All right. So the other is that we have, we comment on what we call civic design. What is the shape of our city? Yeah. How, it, how does it look? How are buildings relating to what's going on? And then we also have street artists. We have people that are making their money on the street. And so we, we bring that. All right. That's the public side. We also can use in the public yeah. side the ability to convene. We can bring people together in, in conversation. We can host festivals. We have ethnic dance festivals. We have support of individual artists. We also have cultural mm -hmm. institutions distributed throughout our city in different neighborhoods or in different communities of interest. So it's a wonderful place for us to think about how we can bring the civic conversation to the larger framework. All right. The Museum of Modern Art, yeah. private museum, formidable, with deep roots yeah. and deep history. It has the ability to use its space, its voice, towards the ends of promoting visual culture. And so when we were talking mm. earlier in the conversation about the responsibilities of museums, to me, the responsibilities of the museums is the same as I articulated as our civic responsibility. Museums cannot exist just on their own. They must draw audiences. They yeah. must be relevant. They must demonstrate that they are in touch and that they are allowing the space for people to experience what they want to see. But also, these museums are historically repositories of their own legacies. 94% of, of the art that is owned by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art was done by white men. And so when you're looking at the canon that we spoke of earlier, how is it that we're going to shift and change that? Not by erasing, not by canceling, but by improving and enlarging the conversation around what is represented in these formidable institutions. When we were in London... Mm -hmm. We saw the magnificent work that Elle had in the Turbine Hall. This is remarkably important work that has global significance. And when a museum has the capacity to show at that scale, it really does say this is important. Now, the question is, how do we maintain that? How do we sustain these efforts so that they are not, as we've said here in our conversation, fashion statements. And so that responsibility Absolutely. of the museum is to understand their position and what authority and opportunity yeah. they have to bring a, a better way of looking at a broader world. Yeah. I love the fact that you point out that erasure does no one any favors. And it is such a 
small-hearted and mean-spirited way <laughs> to go about redressing things. I guess a sort of bigger-hearted way of living and acknowledging and working really does benefit us all in the end. It just sounds absolutely beautiful. And speaking of something yeah, that I, is much... More. Yeah? I was going to say just that one of the things that I'm seeing... In, in my museum practice, let's say, is mm-hmm. so encouraging because one of the things that we see at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art is that you, you don't have to sacrifice anything by having the quality, the diversity, the inclusivity, the global view of all of this because they, yeah. they are living in the same space, that when you really look at quality, you have to make no compromise in order to live the rest of yeah. your values. And you were just saying yeah. that erasure is not what we're talking about. We're, we're not talking about cancellation. We're not talking about removal. What we're talking about is a bigger pie, that, that more mm-hmm. opportunity is in there and more intersectionality is in there so that you can really read these Absolutely. histories and these currencies in, in an inclusive framework. Another thing that I just want to add yeah. is that our Museum of Modern Art is looking at the art of people that have historically been neglected by virtue of their personhood. And I can say this yeah. with no limitations that we're looking at artists of different abilities and of differing abilities. My own younger brother was a person of that community. He was born profoundly developmentally disabled, but he had an incredible sense of creativity inside of himself. And so one of the things that we're doing is to acknowledge that our artists are sitting side by side with us and often we don't see them. And so if there has been yes. a lack of visibility around a, a community, one must include the community of the people who we call disabled. I don't, I'm not using yes. that as a limited, but I'm just saying of various abilities, we could be politically correct around the terminology that we use. And I think that's very important so that we are not marginalizing any human being. But human expression is not limited by what somebody else's perception of ability is and what the validity of that voice brings. And so again, it's some of the work that I'm extremely proud about at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art is that we're reshaping this canon that we're talking about in a broader way. Yeah, yeah. No, it really sounds like incredibly invigorating work, but really meaningful and really necessary work. And speaking of necessary work, you said in a San Francisco Business Times interview that you believe in the power of a good plan. If you are in a key position to make sure that this undertaking of a pan-African community of people who are deeply invested in the success of African art and the elevation of African art becomes a priority for as long as possible, what would that good plan of yours contain or what does it require at this moment? A huge question to something that Very is big. really capturing <laughs> more than my imagination. 
so what, what does yeah. the plan look like? For At the end of the plan, you, I think there's something called results-based accountability. You know, results-based accountability mm-hmm. basically says, what's the headline after you have done something? What headline are you going to post? What does it say? So I think that this collective needs to understand what headlines will result from this. That then gives you a kind of wink into what elements need to be in a good plan. One of the headlines that I think is very important is that the narrative of where we are at the end of some period of time has shifted. It is different. We are no longer looking at otherizing art. We look at it as integrative, that it is belonging, that many people belong and feel a sense of belonging, that it is not just owned by one particular identity, but the appreciation is writ large and many people can be in this framework. It is really quite different in a sense Because when we talk about African and diasporic work, we're really talking about something as much broader than the European canon, about the Western canon. Because if we really truly look at the origin of the species, and and the science promotes this, the origin of the species is Africa. So in a sense, all parts of the world are connected by dent of our origin story. And at the end of it, I think that we're looking at a headline that said, are we achieving greater humanity? Are we achieving Mm -hmm. our higher human potential? Have we exceeded our wildest dreams about inclusivity? Are we more whole and complete as humans? And have we contributed to the importance of the human community coming together to fight the most formidable issues that we have on this planet. Art as a unifying factor. And the idea, I think, of the diaspora is that in which way did it go? We've centered that diaspora in being joined between North and South America and Africa But even in real time, we're looking at Dubai. We're looking at North Africa in a different way. We're looking at how we're really influencing ourselves in the southern part of the Americas. And so we can't really even begin to imagine how far out this will spread so that the headline is that we are more inclusive in humanity. Now, that also means that you have to have a you have to have a starting point and i think at this point in centering this on some of the important building blocks i would say that the pan african community needs to be in constant dialogue and intentional dialogue around specific results and outcomes one of the other yeah. things that is very important about this is communication. Who is controlling the Mm -hmm. narrative or the narratives? Who is authoring the story? Often you're looking at them to tell the story about us, but how is it like what you're doing right in this moment 
that you you're taking control of an important part of the narrative and building that narrative so that there are things that come out of the narrative that are concrete, tangible, and definable. One of the other, I think, aspects is documentation. I think that it is very important, as you were doing, for us to make sure that we, who are, who's telling the story, can proliferate the story. How do you get that out into journals? Who is Who are the commentators? We should have a hundred great commentators within the communities that we're talking about that are really constantly before the public, telling the story, letting the press know, informing the conversations in art fairs, and bringing people together. That controlling of the narrative so that we're not outside of the boxing ring, we're actually defining what's going on inside of the boxing ring. So communication is an important part of it because that then brings us into greater frequency among each other in this and and to use technology. There are facilities that are there, right? And how do we use the technology uh, that is available to us? We're talking about the telecommunications technology, but are we informed in terms of financial technology or other ways in Mm -hmm. which we can use what was brought up in a, one of the most wonderful panels, the importance of, of how you measure and, and value a, a portfolio. So all of these things, this new generation is tech-enabled, and, and I think that's important. The other is that bringing our institutions, our, our frameworks that have sustainability together is important because it's very hard for individuals to sustain an individual drive. So regular and sustained communications are important. One of the other great things that happen in London is that we have the chance to spend a day at the Delphina Foundation. And Aaron was just brilliant at, at saying, we have all these different parts of our, quote, ecosystem. Is there a place for people to be able to retreat And how do we bring those centers of excellence or opportunity together so that there is a necklace of opportunity, that they're linked together, and that that you can pull upon these different institutions to help to deepen your own practice, whether you're a collector, a curator, an artist, a museum official, a, a person who is in the press, should you have that opportunity for a retreat to understand a broader communication strategy? This is when we begin to import the institutional frameworks in ways that we can yeah. now connect, deepen, and improve uh, the development of the ecosystem. All of these things need to run simultaneously in a planning framework. And that's one of the things that I'm most excited about working with Lucille and with Frida and with others and Kisa to formulate. Yeah. Yeah. You've just taken us to school, to church, and everywhere in between. I want to ask you one final question. As a person whose interest and focus has been around the betterment of your fellow human beings, what do you know for sure, Charles Collins? One thing I think I know for sure is that we're living at a time of immense opportunity, that for the first time, I think, in human history, we recognize that we live on one planet together. 
we have, for so many of our histories, lived in different worlds. But the world is bringing us more conscious understanding that we live on one planet and we must live sustainably on one planet. I know for sure that we must confront this in order for us to sustain ourselves and have even meaning on this planet. Uh, some people will talk about other larger frameworks. Some people refer to God. Some people refer to love. Some people refer to justice. Some people refer to distributed justice. I do believe that we have to live on this planet in a just way. Our superpower is when we work together. When we author change that is meaningful, we author it together among each other so that it is distributed and that we are responsible between and among each other. Because ultimately, and it goes back to an earlier part of our conversation, I, I, I deeply believe in humanity. I am a humanist at heart. And in that, I think that the work that, that I'm driven to, that I love the most, is empowering others to reach their highest potential. I, for years, my work at the YMCA, and even what I'm doing now, is looking at how we lift up young people and help them to achieve their highest potential. How do we identify the gaps in opportunity? And how do we name them, label them, give them identity and weight? And how do we work towards the improvement of human capacity? That's how we're going to get through this. That's how we are going to make the big change that is necessary. And as a person who spent a good deal of time helping to empower others, uh, I find myself at this point being a, a grateful grandfather of three young, mm. beautiful children. And they're going to inherit the world. That's beautiful. Charles, thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure and such an honor speaking to you and meeting you today. It was really fantastic. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Thanks for listening to the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Rafilwem Bakanyane, for the Rare Event Foundry. Spike Valentine is on technical for DBO Media. And a big thank you to the Latitudes team.